if we didn't have marriage, we would invent something very similar to it. What we need is we need a marriage law which is fit for purpose in the 21st century, and that isn't the marriage law which we find in the 1949 Act. You're listening to episode 58 of the National Secular Society podcast produced by Emma Park. In this episode, I'm joined by three guests to discuss the issue of marriage law reform. The Law Commission recently conducted a consultation on weddings law and is due to publish its report at the end of the year. But do its proposals go far enough? If not, how far do the laws concerning weddings, marriages and marriage-like relationships need to be updated to make them suitable for modern Britain? One person with a special interest in this question is Russell Sandberg, Professor of Law at Cardiff University. Russell has recently published a book entitled Religion and Marriage Law, The Need for Reform. He argues that substantial reform of the law is necessary, particularly in regard to non-religious weddings, which at the moment are not legally binding. A man with direct experience of the obstacles faced by participants in non-religious weddings is Philip Spixley. Philip is an independent celebrant and chair of the Wedding Celebrancy Commission, as well as president of the Association of Independent Celebrants. My third guest, Pragna Patel, has particular expertise in another area of marriage law which urgently needs reform, the problem of unregistered religious marriages. Pragna is the founder of Southall Black Sisters, a not-for-profit, secular and inclusive organisation that supports the rights of Asian and African Caribbean women in Britain. Russell Sandberg, Pragna Patel and Philip Spixley, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hello. Good to be here. Russell, perhaps you could start by just giving us a brief overview of the state of the law at the moment on weddings. Well, the state of the law of weddings at the moment is in a bit of a mess because the current legislation is based on historical quirk rather than um, the social reality. So the law is found in the Marriage Act of 1949, and that makes a distinction between marriages as according to the rights of the Church of England and all other marriages. And Church of England, for this purpose, also includes the Church in Wales. And that second category of all other marriages includes civil marriages, Quaker marriages, Jewish marriages, and also marriages in any place of registered worship. And the laws simply fail to keep up to date with social reality because it means that non-religious marriages are excluded, so marriages conducted by belief organisations, such as Humanist UK or Independent Celebrants, they are not um, in themselves legally binding. And similarly, um, the law indirectly discriminates against certain forms of religious marriage. So religions that don't have a building um, or don't have a tradition of being married in, in a building uh, of marriages taking place in a building are also excluded. And so all other uh, weddings that take place, be it at a beach conducted by an independent celebrant, be it conducted by Humanist UK, be it a religious marriage but isn't in a place of worship, they are not legally binding. And so unless and until the couple also undergo a civil ceremony, then the couple are not legally married. And that causes all kinds of problems, um, particularly later, later on, if the relationship breaks down. And so this is an area of law that the Law Commission 
is currently looking into and is about to uh, produce its final report on. And it's an area of law where there's a need to for reform to bring it into uh, the 21st century. Why is it that the law focuses so much on buildings, on the idea that you have to, it's the place that matters for where you get married? Uh, it's purely historical. It comes from the fact that, you know, in 1753, the only um, place where you could get married was in the Paris church. And over time, um, other places have become recognised, civil um, weddings, weddings in other tolerated religions. Uh, and so it's all um, for historical reasons. It often seems that, that in a number of these sorts of areas, English law, rather than sort of starting from scratch all over again, just sort of cobbles on bit by bit um, additions until the law gradually becomes more unwieldy and more unsatisfactory. Is, is that your impression with this area? Absolutely. And the problem is that that then leads to confusion. And so, you know, there's a whole raft of empirical data out there that shows that the current law marriage is also misunderstood, not just in relation to uh, belief marriages, not just in relation to religious marriages, but also in relation to rights of cohabitees. So there's this myth of what's called common law marriage, um, which an awful lot of people believe. They believe that if they live together for a certain amount of time, they get the same rights as if they were married. And that, legally speaking, is nonsense. But I think that reflects how complicated and out of date our law currently is. Well, let's start with one aspect of, of this um, problem that you highlighted in your book that's just recently been published, Religion and Marriage Law, The Need for Reform. Let's talk specifically about unregistered religious marriages. Before we turn to Pragna, who's going to tell us some details about particular cases, Russell, just on the sort of legal concept, an unregistered religious marriage, what's, what's going on there? What's the issue? Well, the issue is that an unregistered religious marriage takes place where it doesn't comply with the Marriage Act 1949. And there's all sorts of reasons why a religious marriage might not comply. One reason is that the law is um, discriminatory and requires a building. And you might have a religion that doesn't have a building or has a tradition of marriages taking place elsewhere. Um, it might also result from unawareness of the law and what's required. And that too, I think, requires if not law reform, requires awareness and education. But there's other reasons why actually, you know, it might be um, completely unobjectionable that there's a religious only marriage. Um, because in some communities, people enter into a religious marriage in order to be together and chaperoned. So I think we've got to be careful in terms of saying, you know, the policy objective here shouldn't be to outlaw religious-only marriages or to stop them from happening, what I'm concerned with, and I think what the Law Commission is concerned with, is um, dealing with the issue where people's, people have entered into an unregistered religious marriage not necessarily through choice on by both parties because the law is unclear the law is too rigorous, or in some cases, 
it's not a voluntary decision because one party um, wants a religious-only marriage, and that's a, 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 a difficult scenario to solve. Okay, on that point then, um, Pragna, you as a founding member of Southern Black Sisters, you've helped women who have been forced into a marriage, possibly, um, you know, either an unregistered religious marriage or, or a marriage which um, they don't consent to, um, or who suffer in their marriages in some way. How big a problem is this type of scenario in the UK at the moment? Um, what's really interesting about this is that um, 30 years ago, you know, we would hardly ever encounter uh, a a woman from a minority background, particularly Muslim uh, women, um, we would hardly ever see a situation where a woman would come to us and say, um, I, I, nev I never entered um, into a valid legal marriage. My marriage was never registered. Um, I only had a religious marriage. Most women 30 years ago from Asian backgrounds generally, including Muslim backgrounds, would have had both a civil registration and would then have had some kind of a religious ceremony. Um, and so there wasn't an issue in, in those days around, you know, what would happen if you've only had a religious only marriage and that marriage broke down, uh, usually due to domestic abuse and other forms of gender related harms. 30 years later, we're seeing a significant rise in the number of women who arrive at our doors saying that they had no idea that they, uh, but that they had entered into a religious only marriage, which was not valid. What they tell us is that most of the time they entered into the marriage either thinking it was valid or that they had no choice over the form of marriage that they entered, or that they were deceived or coerced or intimidated and threatened into having a religious-only marriage. Uh, sometimes they were told that, you know, a civil marriage would follow, and it never did. And those women are growing in significant numbers. Now, what particularly concerns us about this is that there is a wider context. This isn't just a social reality that's come out of nowhere. The, the rise in religious-only marriages in certain communities has corresponded directly with the rise in ultra-conservative and fundamentalist uh, religion in those communities. So what we are seeing is that inevitably it is women who are at the receiving end of practices such as being coerced into a religious only marriage, uh, but also other practices, including being made to comply with austere dress codes or to comply with rules around gender segregation, not just in private spaces, but in public spaces, more incre increasingly in schools and other public institutions, um, or are made to comply with uh, Sharia principles, in other words, religious law principles. Um, all of these are in effect 
signs, warning signs of the rise of religious fundamentalism in communities. And that is why we are seeing a significant rise in the numbers of women uh, being deceived or coerced into having a religious only marriage. There was a Channel 4 survey carried out, I think it was in 2017, a survey carried out um, on Muslim women, which showed that 78% of Muslim women had entered into a religious-only marriage of all the num of all the numbers canvassed, of all the women canvassed, out of which 60% of those women had no choice. And so what we are dealing with here is a social reality that has profound implications for the rights particularly of um, South Asian women, Muslim women in particular, um, who are increasingly being told that secular law is not a legitimate source of law and that the only source of legitimacy comes from religion and therefore more and more are coerced, deceived into entering religious-only marriage, which then creates uh, profound consequences when the marriage breaks up, usually due to domestic abuse and violence, and they find themselves without any legal remedies, uh, particularly in relation to financial and property settlements. How is it that they are forced, I mean, in Britain, which has, you know, at least in theory, the rule of law applicable to everyone, how is it that these women are forced into these religious-only marriages? Mainly because they are surrounded by norms and values which are increasingly becoming normalised, which tell them that that the only source of legitimacy regarding uh, the conduct of their lives comes from religion, stems from religion and religious laws. We've seen also a rise in the number of uh, religious arbitration forums springing up in communities, purporting to uh, arbitrate and resolve over marriage, uh, marital disputes and family matters so-called Sharia courts and councils. These have also seen a significant rise in communities. So what women are being told is that if they want to be a proper Muslim, a good Muslim woman, then they need to conform to religious principles, religious values, religious norms, as defined by often very ultra-conservative, patriarchal, fundamentalist, religious leaderships. And these leaderships then create, you know, actually then create the problem in the first place and then purport to resolve the problem by setting up institutions that actually only serve to reinforce uh, the status quo and power structures within minority communities. What legal status do these Sharia courts have? They have no legal status. The, the, the rulings are you know, are not legally binding, but I, I think that's besides the point. The point is that they exist to resolve marital problems. So if women are forced into having a religious-only marriage, then they are told that, they are, that the only way they can resolve that is to go to one of these Sharia courts, so-called Sharia courts, or these arbitration forums. So in a way, what happens is the more women are excluded from the formal legal system, and the marriage laws themselves and family laws more broadly, 
the more they are then dependent on on parallel legal systems, on so-called uh, community-based arbitration forums, um, in which they are discriminated against um, on on multiple levels. Um, none of these so-called um, courts and forums. Uh, work in the interests of women. In fact, they do the very opposite. They undermine their human rights and they compound the violations that women face um, already in their lives. Suppose the relationship does break up and they've had a religious-only marriage. Yes. Um, and suppose there have been children and, and assets involved. Um, yeah. What what then happens to these women if they're not legally married? They find themselves in a state of complete limbo. They have no rights. In in the arbitration forums, religious arbitration forums, they're subject to immense, profound discrimination. And they cannot um, go to the formal legal system because their marriage is simply not recognized as legal. And that's precisely what happened in the case of um, Akhtar Khan in 2020, which was a case that concerned a Muslim woman who had a religious-only marriage. And when that marriage broke up due to abuse, years and years of abuse, and to the fact that her husband wanted to enter into a, another polygamous marriage, um, she sought financial and property settlements in the formal legal system. So the whole case was whether or not she had any right to seek financial and property settlements following the breakup of her marriage, given that they had her marriage had never been registered and that she'd only had a civil marriage. She couldn't obtain a divorce because her husband said that in court, the husband said the relationship constituted a non-marriage and he claimed that they'd never been legally married and that he owed his wife nothing. So she sought to have her marriage declared void. Um, and the significance of this is that if her marriage was declared void, it would have enabled her to be granted a decree of nullity, which would have in turn enabled her to claim financial remedies to which she was entitled following the breakdown of her marriage. But the court refused and said that they could not recognize her marriage as void. So she was left without rights. Um, and that is in reality, the plight of many, many women especially from um, Muslim or Asian communities in Britain? Yes. Right. Um, Russell, just on that technical and um, legal point, could you just tell us a bit more about this distinction between a marriage which is void and one which is, what would it be, invalid? Uh, the, the, the difference is between a, a, a valid marriage, a void marriage, and a non-marriage. And in the case we've just been talking about, it was held that it was a non-marriage um, in that no uh, ceremony had ever taken place. And as we've just been hearing, had it been held that it was a void marriage, then um, a, degree of, a degree of nullity could have applied, which could have given some rights on separation. How, how would that have worked, technically? Well, the argument then would have been that it was void in that, it, in that a marriage had taken place, um, but it failed to comply with legal requirements. Now, actually, that was the argument that the court at first instance ran with. And it was it was one of those judgments where the end was praiseworthy, but the means was rather questionable. Mm. Um, because what he was doing was he was stretching the law on um, nullity and on validity to try and give rights here. 
that old adage that hard cases make bad law. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, it, it wasn't surprising that the higher court slapped this down, but it does mean that we're back to square one in that um, by classifying religious-only marriages and as non-marriages, then there are no rights. What would be the best way of dealing with these problems related to unregistered mar marriages? How should the law be reformed? Well, what we suggested in our written submission to the Law Commission's um, inquiry and consultation is, first of all, there, should, there must be a compulsory uh, universal system of registration. Um, and that ensures that everyone is opted in as a citizen of the UK, so that there aren't stratified layers of citizenship and everyone has rights flowing from the fact that they are married. And so that's not dependent on campaigns around raising awareness, because don't forget, in, in the Akhtar versus Khan case, Mrs. Akhtar was herself a solicitor. When she entered into the religious-only marriage, she knew that though it had no legal status, but she could do nothing about it. She had no autonomy. She could not exercise choice. And so the issue of just, well, isn't this a question of raising awareness amongst, you know, Asian women or Muslim women and informing them about their rights? No, it's not enough. Because the wider socioeconomic context in which these women survive is one of profound inequality and powerlessness. So that's the first thing. The second thing we argued, the second recommendation we made is that uh, we say that the wedding law should take account of religious coercion coercion into having a religious only marriage, which is itself a harmful practice. So we said in those circumstances, recognizing deception um, and coercion into a religious marriage as a form of harm against women, and therefore allowing uh, coercion and deception into a marriage to be a grounds for voiding a marriage. Now, Russell, what what's your response to that? Do you agree with Pragnell or would you take a slightly different approach? I'd take a slightly different approach. I'm reluctant to go down the road, if that's what's being suggested, I'm, I'm not sure, of compulsory civil marriage, because we've already got that. We've already got a situation where the laws, where it's stated quite clearly, if you want a legally binding marriage, you need to do X, Y and Z. You need to comply with the Marriage Act 1949. The problem we've got is that the Act itself um, is inflexible and indirectly discriminatory against some religious traditions. So I think one thing we need to do, and this is where the Law Commission, based on their consultation paper, is going in the right direction, is we need to modernise the law of marriage. We need to have a law of marriage which doesn't treat different religions differently. So, for example, just quickly on, on this... Uh just to be, to be clear, in, in a Muslim wedding, are mosques able to be places where you can get legally married or not? Yes, yeah, it, it, it's perfectly possible. Um, if, if you've got a place of worship but registered, then you can conduct marriages there under the Marriage Act 1949. The problem is, or one of the problems, is that a number of mosques aren't registered because there isn't a tradition of getting married in the mosque. 
Yeah, and that's right. A lot of in a, um, a lot of the women that come to us have been married in very informal settings, for example, in their front room or in a restaurant, as was the case in the Abdul Khan case. So um, you know, just the idea of being married in a religious building that's registered won't suffice, I don't think, in the kind of situations that I'm talking about. That's absolutely right, and that's why you know I think. You know, what I'm saying and what the law commission is saying is not that we need to um, extend it to more to more religious buildings. Rather, we need to move away from that focus on buildings to focus on the people who are conducting ceremonies so that ceremonies which take place in the front room can comply with marriage law. And this is where, you know, I, I also completely agree with the criticism of, of, of the narrow approach of the Law Commission. Could, could you just say what, what exactly is, is the narrow approach of the Law Commission? You said that both of you have said that their terms of reference are very narrow. In what way? Well, they're simply looking at the law on getting married. And that means they're not looking at, wide, at the wider effect of marriage. And they're not looking at the moment at cohabitation rights. Because I think that's the thing which could solve this issue, is that if you had a system like the Scottish system, whereby there are certain rights on cohabitation, then in the Akatan Khan case, the, um, the woman would still have had some rights on, on the separation of a relationship. That a, a different way of getting there. Now, we've got um, Phillips Bixley here, an independent celebrant. And another key problem, um, Russell, which you have identified in your book, is this um, issue of the status of non-religious weddings. We've, we've talked a bit about why, why buildings have become so important as a sort of archaic feature of English law, a characteristic sort of anachronism. How does this um, requirement for buildings discriminate against non-religious weddings? Um, Philip, um, from your perspective. Well... Lots of people nowadays, uh, and it's heavily uh, advertised through holiday companies, etc., want to get married on the beach or in the favourite park or, you know, open-air weddings or they may have a favourite restaurant or somewhere that where the, that is very sentimental to them. And so present law means that you've got to get married in the building that's licensed or the room that's licensed even. Now, the registry office have been getting around this um, in recent couple of years because people have expressed a wish to be married outside and to some extent the registry offices have, have bent the present rules in the fact that you know they will do an outside ceremony now as long as the register is signed in the licensed room um, and there's all sorts of horror stories coming to me from from couples who have arranged with registrars to do this. And then uh, as soon as it looks like um, the weather won't hold up or, you know, there's some suggestion that the weather won't hold up, they decide that they're going to move the whole wedding into a room that really isn't suitable. So, you know, it's, it's a giving couples a modern choice of where they want to celebrate their wedding and, and, and commit to each other. And I think the system they have in Jersey has somewhat gone towards 
a long way towards what we need in in the mainland. In Jersey, they licensed 15 celebrants. Um, the government there licensed 15. They gave them training on how to fill in the legal forms, and uh, they set up a system where people can book the celebrant of their choice and uh, and the location which although they are approved by the local authority and the uh, the government they are very flexible and so you know people are getting married on the beach the system's very simple they register their intent with the government office and they tell the government office which celebrant they want to use and uh, because that's that celebrant is licensed then they are open to the sort of ceremony that they desire. Russell, how far do you um, think that this agree that, that 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 might be a way forward for non-religious weddings? Uh, I, I completely agree. I mean, I, I think that if you take that step of moving from registering buildings to recognising people, then there should be no limit on where it can take place. And also, there should be no limit, in my view, on the type of person who could conduct those ceremonies, provided that they are um, recognised by the state, uh, that they undergo appropriate training, etc., etc., etc. So, you know, I, I think if we move in that direction, and we should move in that direction, then the kind of system we've just been talking about, to me, makes a lot of sense. So would you say then um, the idea would be to have officiants who are legally registered um, and able to make legally binding ceremonies without any necessary requirement as to what their religional belief should be? Exactly. And and that's where my view um, is slightly different from um, the Scottish system, which is still religional belief. Um, or indeed the Law Commission's consultation, which talks about nominating bodies being either a religion or a belief, and then talks about independent celebrants um, existing as a separate category. Um, what I suggest in the book is that if you take the position that religion shouldn't have a monopoly of this, religions and the state shouldn't have a monopoly over this, then any organisation should be able to nominate. Now, this, I believe, is um, slightly different, perhaps, from, from the humanist UK position, if I'm right. They, they still focus on the, the belief aspect. Is that correct? Yes, um, because they supported a case last year, the Harrison case, um, in which a number of couples were arguing that the law discriminated uh, and breached human rights provisions in not recognising humanist marriages because um, there's a right to freedom of religion or belief. Um, But I would argue that the word belief there isn't limited simply to beliefs such as humanism, but is limited to beliefs that are um, genuinely held generally. And so, you know, there is an argument here as to where do you draw the line in your book, you make a really good point about them. Um, you discuss, you know, the difficulties, the tangles that um, English law has got into with the idea of religional belief, say, in, in employment law. What counts as a, a relevant belief for this purpose? 
Well, it, 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 exactly. That's my means of critique of, of the Law Commission's position, is that um, they talk about a religion or belief um, organisation. And as I point out in the book, you know, defining what we mean by religion or belief has proved to be very, very difficult and very problematic in the employment tribunal context and in another half a dozen different legal contexts, actually. The employment tribunals have come up with a test which they've copied and pasted from the human rights jurisprudence somewhat selectively. And it's a flexible test, which means that, you know, you get different employment tribunal chairs reaching very different conclusions. So one says that um, vegetarianism isn't a belief, whereas another one says that veganism is a belief. Um, and, you know, another one again will say that a belief in the BBC is a belief. Pregnant. Yeah, Emma, I, I just, would it, would it not help to circumvent the whole problem around what is religion and what is the meaning of belief and so on? By, by not arguing that the efficient should all be secular. I mean, the, the thing about that is that at the currently marriage registrars are all secular officials who must perform their duties, um, you know, whatever their private views with regard to the public sector equality duty. Having religious bodies, um, I'm not so much here concerned about, you know, humanists and others, but really having religious bodies nominate officiants or train officiants or carry out the role of officiants, I think it would lead to immense difficulties for women for all the reasons that I've outlined, you know, for Muslim and, and other Asian women, um, and, and result in even less transparency and uh, legality since you know, these officiants nominated by religious bodies will not be seen as public officials and will not have the kind of regulatory and accountability mechanisms applied to them. And, I, you know, in my work, I constantly see institutions, whether it's the police, uh, the courts and others, defer to religion, particularly minority religions, for fear of being labelled Islamophobic or racist. I can't see how bodies, religious bodies, nominating officiants will lead to any, you know, less uh, mischief in, in respect of what I've outlined. I think the answer must lie in, in having secular officials. So, I mean, is, is the issue then actually that we've got this problem that on the one hand, we've got independent celebrants and on the other hand, we've got registrars. Um, independent celebrants can't currently perform legally binding ceremonies. Registrars can, but registrars are quite hamstrung in the form of ceremony that they're allowed to perform. That, that's quite correct. But to, with, with the Scot Scotland um, system, there's all sorts of things happening there. I mean, we've got members who have formed their own religion off their own bat because they're, if they're allowed to do that and they can demonstrate to the Scottish government that they are a recognised religion, then they will get a licence to conduct legal weddings. You've also got other organisations who are slotting in humanism in their titles so that they can jump on the bandwagon as well. So... You know, it's just making a whole mockery of what system they've got in Scotland. And it's making a mockery almost of the idea of religion or belief, right? Mm. 
Yep. And in your experience, Philip, um, do the couples who want to be married by an independent celebrant always want to involve some sort of religion or belief in their ceremony, or do some of them simply, uh, they're not interested sometimes? Definitely not. A lot of them want a poem or, or they want a period of time or perhaps remembering, recognising, reminiscing with people who can't be there and they may want a private prayer um, uh, time, just a moment for people to, to think about those people who can't be there. They may have lost a grandparent in the last few months and they may wish to have a prayer. So in other words, they, they want all these things and you can you can um, help them to do that as an independent celebrant, but you can't marry them legally, which is a bit frustrating. We can't, no, and, and the way we have to explain it, of course, is that we work on the continental model. You know, everybody in France has to get married in the register office and then go off to church for the wedding, a marriage and a wedding. And once people get that idea into the head that the marriage takes place in the register office, and the wedding takes place in the place they want, when they get that into the head, they accept it. But they shouldn't have to do that. You know, and this is what we're hoping that the Law Commission can solve. Russell, what's your view about this? I mean, do you, do you think that um, the concept of marriage has to involve some sort of element of belief or, or does the current situation, I mean, the statistics of the number of people who are, want to get married in a non-religious way, does that suggest that um, belief or religion should, should no longer be an ingredient of the definition of um, legal marriage? Well, I, I think it, it shouldn't be an ingredient because it currently isn't an ingredient in that you can have civil marriage. Um, I think the problem with the current law is that it's, it's too fixed between the two extremes of religious marriage on the one hand and civil marriage on the other. And it's that harshness of the law um, which has created the need for independent celebrants, but they are currently outside the law. My view, as put forward in the book, is that we need to modernise the law. Um, it won't solve all the issues we've been just discussing today, uh, but it would take us a considerable step further if we had a system which focused on people and they didn't have to be nominated by religion or indeed, in my view, by a belief organisation. You would say that, say, independent celebrants would be able, just be able to become, um, under some legal process, registered as officiants who could perform legally binding um, marriages without um, having to belong to any specific belief organisation? Yes, that would be ideal. Just one final question for all three of you. Do we still need marriage in the 21st century? Is it just an outdated institution that should be replaced by something else? Russell, what do you think? Well, I think that that really sort of comes to the heart of it. The word marriage and the word wedding are loaded, not just religiously, but culturally and also legally. And we definitely need something which um, need institutions which recognise legal obligations and the effect of those legal obligations on the parties when that relationship ends or breaks down. So, yeah, if, if, if we didn't have marriage, we would invent something very similar to it. But, you know, what we need is we need a marriage law which is fit for purpose in the 21st century, and that isn't the marriage law which we find in the 1949 Act. Pregnant, what about you? I agree. 
do we need something else instead of marriage? Definitely. Are we going to get it? No. And one of the things that was very interesting about um, the Uttar Khan case was the, the, the Court of Appeal specifically stating that public policy requirements meant that they had to uphold the sanctity of marriage. And I think for, uh, for many BME women, the lack of equality um, and the pressures and constraints that they face when entering into a marriage you know, is very, very significant. But at the moment, their social realities are not properly reflected in the marriage laws. So for me, the wider question has to be the looking at ways in which harms are perpetrated on women in the name of marriage and how the formal legal system is going to address those. So first of all, protect women and then perhaps further down the line when we've come to a sort of society of greater equality, perhaps we can start thinking of, about maybe whether there's something better than marriage um, altogether. Um, Philip, what about you? Yeah, I totally agree with Russell. We, you know, marriage is here. If it wasn't called marriage, it'd have to be called something else. I think it just needs a whole look over with a bigger scope than what the Law Commission's been given by the government. But uh, at least we're one step in the right direction. Russell Sandberg, Pragna Patel and Philip Spixley, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. This episode was produced by the National Secular Society, all rights reserved. The views expressed by contributors do not necessarily represent those of the NSS. You can access the show notes and subscriber information for this and all our episodes at secularism.org.uk forward slash podcast. For feedback, comments and suggestions, please email podcast at secularism.org.uk. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a positive review wherever you can. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join us next time.